Good morning, everybody. Great to see you all. My name's Luke. I'm one of the pastors here and part of our preaching team. And yeah, welcome. Uh, we're glad that you're here. Um, I'll uh, just make it three people uh, excited about winter camp. Uh, and I know that actually at the next service, we're going to be baptizing three folks, a couple of them. Uh, a big part of what God used in their life was winter camp. And so uh, we just rejoice in God's work uh, for us. Um, when was the last time that you had deja vu? Do you get this very often? I used to get it a lot. I can't really remember the last time I had deja vu, but you're familiar with the idea of deja vu. Uh, de, the word, uh, the phrase deja vu, it's French for already seen. It's when you have an experience and you're going th through a moment and you feel like, oh man, I feel like I've already done this. And I actually realized that a few years ago that Molly and I, my wife, we have totally different understandings of deja vu. Uh, for, for her, it was like, um, when she like was literally doing the same thing she had done before, that's what she understood as deja vu. For me, it was when I had an experience and I felt like I remembered doing it, but I knew I hadn't really done it. A lot of times it had happened in a dream or it had happened in some other way. You ever have deja vu? It's kind of a funky thing. About 97% of people, they say, experience deja vu at some point. It's very common in six to 10 year olds. Uh, which I don't know what that means. Some of you child development people can kind of shed some light on that maybe, pretty wild. Uh, it's also more common among people who are able to remember their dreams. Uh, that's interesting. Do you remember your dreams? I don't know. But deja vu is this experience where it's like, man, I, I, I know that I, I, I know I haven't done this. I feel like I've done this. What is this? It, something's ringing a bell here. Something seems familiar here. That's what deja vu is. And I just wonder as society, and as you look around the world, and as you think about your life, and as you think about your family, and you think about your work, and you think about your relationships, does it ever feel to you like we're all just doing deja vu over and over and over again? Right, when you think at a societal level, ungodly media influences, that feels like deja vu. Corrupt politicians, deja vu. Volatile markets, deja vu. Right, and we keep thinking, well, someone will fix it. Something will fix it, don't we? And, and that shows how stupid we are, and that's deja vu. Because <laughs> we go, no, no, no one's gonna fix it, right? You think societal, you think at a personal level. Difficulty in your marriages. The same fight, the same argument over the same issues, deja vu. Contentious relationships at work, people that are side-eyeing each other and little casting things against one another. Man, that feels like deja vu. Drama at church. Cycles of addiction. Regrets. Frustrations. On and on and on. Right? And in our personal lives, we keep thinking, well, somehow it's going to get better. This is the year, it's gonna be my new resolutions. This is the year, it's gonna be this new thing. Like something is somehow just, just gonna get better because we have all, whether we realize it or not, we have bought into a myth and it's the myth of progress. We assume that things just will naturally get better. This is one of the assumptions um, of, of the enlightenment that things are just gonna keep getting better until we eventually sort of reach utopia as a society and in our own lives. And for sure, there is a reality that things will get better when Jesus comes back, right? The enlightenment, in a sense, is borrowing from a Christian tradition that does say, hey, in the end, things are going to be great. But there's a myth that it's all just going to keep incrementally getting better up and to the right until we get there. That's not true. 
So here's the bad news today. It's probably not going to get better. Welcome to church. <laughs> Things are terrible and they're not going to get better. Just want you to know that. A positive, encouraging redemption gateway. <laughs> Listen to Caleb on the way home. You'll feel better. So that's the bad news. The good news I want to tell you today is that God is still good. He's a rock and his plans are unstoppable. And so we're nearing the end of our uh, subset of this series. We're in this series, We Want a King. We're looking at the lives of Saul and David and Solomon. We're getting near the end of looking at the life of David. Next week will be the last one. Seth is going to help us understand uh, what David did with his census at the end of 2 Samuel. And then we'll move into, the, into looking at Solomon. But, but we're kind of wrapping this up. And so uh, in a sense, we're wrapping up this section. I've been looking at the end of 2 Samuel and I've been reading it and studying it and, and spending time in it. And I keep having deja vu. I keep reading it and going like, wait a minute, this sounds like something I've experienced before. This sounds like something I've read before. And in fact, it is. And I think that actually the author, what he's trying to do as we get to the end of 2 Samuel is he's intending to give you deja vu. He's intending to make you think, boy, I've seen this before. He's intending to make you think, wow, this is a lot like the book of Judges. So uh, in order to help you understand this, I realize not all of us are super familiar with all these things and, and you, you maybe don't understand everything that led up to this moment. So let me just briefly kind of review the history of the Old Testament up to this point. So God creates everything. He creates it good. He creates man and woman in his image. All of creation is good. The relationships that humanity has with himself and with his wife and with God and with the creation, it's all good. And then Adam and Eve rebel against God. They choose to go their own way. They don't believe the truth about God. God, they instead believe a lie, they take the fruit, they eat it, and all their relational world is broken. All of a sudden, their relationship with God's broken, their relationship with husband and wife is broken, they're blaming each other. Relationship with creation is, is broken, it begins to be cursed. And the relationship even with themselves, now they're, instead of being naked and unashamed, they're hiding with fig leaves. And crea creation and humanity is plunged into a world broken by sin. It gets so bad that a few chapters later, God is saying, hey, this is just not good at all. I need to start over. He sends a flood and saves this one family, Noah. And Noah and his family begin to uh, multiply. And it doesn't get a lot better. And you get to the Genesis 11, and in Genesis 11, humanity is trying to build a tower to make a name for themselves, and God says, okay, this isn't good. And what he decides to do is to select one person, Abraham, and he says, I'm going to bless you, and through you, I'm going to bless all the other nations. You're going to be, uh, your descendants are going to be a light to the nations, and I'm going to show the world in all of its brokenness what I'm like through you. And so by the end of the book of Genesis, Abraham's family is now all enslaved in Egypt. Things are not good for them. And uh, you turn the page into Exodus, and in Exodus, they're in slavery, and God begins to rescue them and deliver them. He sends all of these plagues. He does these miraculous works. Uh, you know, you can go watch all the Disney movies or, you know, Charleston Heston or whoever you like, you know. Uh, but, but you can read this story of the Exodus where God shows his powerful deliverance, that he, he uses a Passover lamb to... to to cover and to protect his people. And they go out of that slavery and they're supposed to go into a new land of freedom. But they get into that new land of freedom and rather than, than them being a light to the nations, they start becoming like all the other nations. They start worshiping the same gods as the Canaanites and the Jebusites and the Perizzites and the Termites and all the different people. And they become actually a lot more like those nations. 
And when you get to the book of Judges, what you find is that there is this kind of death spiral that the nation of Israel is in. Even though they have their land, and even though they have God's law and God's word, and even though God is reigning in them as king, over them as king, they're stuck in this cycle. They sin, they rebel, things get really hard. So they cry out to God, God, would you please help us? God is gracious. And so he helps them and delivers them. And then they say, God will never do it again. But then they do it again. And then they get in trouble again. And then God, please help us. Okay. All right. And it's this cycle. And it's not just a cycle. It's actually more like a downward spiral down the toilet. And so you get to the end of the book of Judges. And here's the last sentence of the book of Judges. Judges 21 verse 25. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Actually, that verse shows up a number of times through the book of Judges. And you realize this is what happens when everyone does what is right in their own eyes. But the way that sentence goes, it does make you ask a question. You go, well, was what if the problem is that there's no king? Maybe this is why it's so bad. There's no king. There's no, there's no political leadership. There's no political strength. Maybe that's the problem. And so then we get into 1 Samuel, which we looked at a number, a number of weeks ago. And in 1 Samuel chapter 8, here's what the people say. Though Samuel, uh, Samuel warns them, hey, a king is not really going to solve your problem. It says the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, no, but there shall be a king over us that we also may be like all the nations and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. This is the answer to their problem. We need a king. We want a king like all the other nations, someone that's going to fight for us, someone that's going to lead for us. We're, we're, you know, God's not really doing it anymore. We need a king. And that's what launched this whole series. That's why we're calling the series, We Want a King. And so they got Saul. And the word Saul, literally his name means asked for. They got what they asked for. They got a king just like all the other nations. And then God raises up David. And it says that David was a man after God's own heart. And we often misunderstand that to think that that's talking about the quality of David's heart. It's actually talking about God's choice. This is God's heart. This is God's choice. They got what they asked for, but now this is my choice, God says. And David seems like he's going great, but then you've been here, if you've been here the last few weeks or if you've been listening on the podcast or watching on YouTube, you just see like it's really started to fall apart. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, David sexually exploits Bathsheba tries to cover it up, murders her husband, finally is awakened by God speaking through the prophet Nathan in chapter 12, saying, hey, wake up. But the result of that sin is what we then looked at last week, that because of David's active sin, his children take on all these qualities that, embodied, that David embodied. And because of his passive sin, his unwillingness to stop it, things are now in disarray. It was so promising, but now it's so devastating and as you read these last, I don't know, eight chapters of 2 Samuel, you're like, wait a minute, this feels like Judges. And if you're not familiar with Judges, let me just show you a number of the parallels. First parallel, and this is very sad to say, is rape. In 2 Samuel 13 and in Judges 19, there's a violent rape. There's no question about what it is. There's no question about how wrong it is. There's no question about how bad it is. And in both places... The victim, right before it happens, 
cries out these exact words, do not do this vile thing. Judges 19, do not do this vile thing. 2 Samuel 13, do not do this vile thing. Deja vu. The second parallel you see is a leader with great hair who rebels against his parents and is also a pyromaniac. (laughs) I realize that's a longer description. Um, in, In Judges, it was Samson. Samson, this guy with great hair, who his parents said, hey, we want you to marry a nice Jewish girl. And he said, no, I want all these other girls. And then when the Philistines started to attack him, he like uh, took a fox's tail and lit it on fire so that it would light the fields of the Philistines. I mean, kind of nuts, right? And then now we get to 2 Samuel 14 and you get Absalom. And the main description of Absalom, David's son, is what? Great hair. In fact, the way that Absalom is eventually going to... you know, be, be caught is he's, he's actually going to be, <laughs> this is pretty funny. If you don't read the Bible, you should read the Bible. It's pretty great. He's riding on a donkey and uh, he, his hair gets caught in these branches and he's like suspended there, stuck until someone comes along and kills him, right? It's like, that's pretty funny. But if you read Second Samuel 14, what you realize is he, Absalom's rebelling against his father, David. He's establishing himself as king. And he sets a big fire on the fields of his enemies. And you go, huh, that sounds familiar. Yeah, deja vu. Another parallel is in both of these parts of Scripture, you start hearing a lot about concubines and bodily remains. In Judges 19, there's this horrific scene where it's actually that concubine who's raped and her body is chopped up and distributed across the nation. It's gruesome. It's vile. It's horrible. And then you get to 2 Samuel 21, and another person is killed. Another group of people are killed, and their bodies begin to rot, and there's a concubine there guarding the bones so that no animals can eat it. And it's this totally weird story, and you're like, why is this story here? What in the world am I supposed to get out of this? And I think what you're supposed to get out of it is, boy, this sounds like deja vu. There's some more parallels. Another kind of funny one is a left-handed gut stab. In Judges 3, Ehud is, uh, is this, this judge that rises up and he stabs uh, this king, King Eglon, who it says was a very overweight man. And Ehud was left-handed and it specifies that he stabbed him in the gut and the hilt of his sword went all the way into his gut and he pulled it out and the you know, entrails came out. It's pretty nasty. I should have given you a like, rated R warning before this sermon, I'm sorry. Um, and in 2 Samuel 20, you get Joab, this commander of David's army, and it describes this story where um, he's been hiding this dagger, and it falls out, and he grabs it with his left hand, and he stabs it into this other person, and the, the entrails come out. Why? Deja vu. Next parallel is worthless, a worthless man appointing himself as a leader. And if you feel like, well, that's not very nice, you shouldn't call him worthless. Well, then look at 2 Samuel 20, verse 1. Now, there happened to be there a worthless man <laughs> whose name was Sheba. I, this is God's word. I didn't make it up. Like, how bad does that stink, by the way, if like you're eternally in the word of God as a worthless man? Like, that's not good. But that exact language is used in Judges 9 to describe Abimelech and the worthless men that surrounded him. 
In Judges 9, Abimelech appoints himself to be king. He says, hey, we're done with all this God is king. I'm going to be the king. And he gathers up this mafia-style gang, and he begins to, you know, exercise authority over everybody. But the Bible calls him this worthless man, and he's appointing himself as a leader, which is exactly the same thing that this guy Sheba does in 2 Samuel chapter 20. You're supposed to go, oh, this is deja vu. And then one more is in both of those cases, this worthless rebel is killed by a woman. In Judges 9, there's this uh, whole uh, sequence where, uh, you know, they basically launch these rocks off of this tower and kill this man, and it was this woman that had been doing it. And then you get to 2 Samuel chapter 20, verse 14, and it's a woman who devises this plan as a city is similarly under siege, and the guy they're trying to find is inside of it, and she says, hey, we'll cut off his head and throw his head down, and it like parallels this story. What do we do with this? What is this for? Why is this all here, right? I've been reading all these chapters going like, this is not as easy to preach as David and Goliath. Kill your giants, baby. You know what I mean? Like, this is like, what do I do with this? And then as I'm just reading, I'm going like, oh, 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 oh. This is deja vu. All right, the conclusion of Judges was what? In those days, there was no king in Israel Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Now we get to the end of 2 Samuel, and there is a king in Israel, and it's not any better. It still feels like judges. It's still just as corrupt. It's still just as violent. It's still just as selfish. It's still just as godless. And the nation of Israel, God's chosen people, are acting like all the other nations. They have a king. They thought that would solve their problems. So again today, friends, I have bad news and I have good news. Here's the bad news. It's probably not going to get better. It's not getting better in this story. And you think, man, this should be, this should be better. They, they, they have this secure kingdom. They have this king that that's David. I mean, David, he wrote all these psalms and he, and he killed the giant and he, and it's not getting any better. And here's what I just want to kind of try to zoom out and apply this to us and say, friends, listen, the world's not getting better. And if you think it's going to, you're a fool. Because the record of scripture is trying to tell you It's not getting better. It's not getting better. You're trying this. You're trying this. You're trying this. You're trying this. It's not going to get better. And at some point, you just got to go, you know what? I just have to accept that this is going to be how it is. I remember this moment a few years ago where I was um, sitting in my house, and I was looking at all these books that I have, right? And uh, I've got a lot of books. If you come over to my house and you go in certain rooms, you could see a lot of books. And people say, you know, have you read all those books? And I say, I've read some of them twice which is code for, no, I haven't read all these books, but I've read a couple of them twice. (laughs) And uh, I remember just looking at all these books, going like, thinking about my age, thinking about how many books a year I read, and going, I'm never going to read these books. (laughs) Like when I was in my 20s and in my 30s, I was going like, yeah, someday, someday I'll read that. And now I'm like going, nope, (laughs) I'm not going to read them. 
I mean, but let's at least make them look nice so that when people come over and they, you know, but, but like, I'm not going to read these. Like, I just had to kind of accept like, hey, I, I guess I'm at the stage of life where I'm going to keep reading. I mean, no doubt, but I'm not going to read all this. And I just wonder at what point do we stop hoping in worldly things to bring the kingdom of God? At what point do we go, well, I used to think that was going to happen. I used to think that was going to happen. And we just go, hey, it ain't going to happen. Like, friends, listen, stop hoping in worldly solutions to bring the kingdom of God. Technology is not going to bring it. Education is not going to bring it. A great economy is not going to bring it. A president is not going to bring it. I mean, my guess is every person in this room, I hope, would vote for King David if he was on the ballot. How'd that go? There was a king in Israel, and everyone still did what was right in their own eyes. And you go to this societally, you can look at this personally. A little more money isn't going to bring the kingdom of God into your life. A job change isn't going to bring the kingdom of God into your life. Moving to a different city isn't going to bring the kingdom of God into your life. Getting your kids in the perfect school or out of the wrong school isn't going to bring the kingdom of God in your life. Finding the perfect church that has everything the exact way you would want it to be won't bring the kingdom of God in your life. Getting your kid in all the right opportunities for musical development or athletic development won't bring the kingdom of God in their life. Now listen, I'm not saying don't move. I'm not saying don't get a new job. I'm not saying don't find a new church. I'm not saying don't pursue every opportunity for your kids. Fine. But stop hoping that it will do what only God can do, which is bring the kingdom. We see, we put our hopes in all these things. We put our trust in all these things. But as theologian Chris Wright says, false gods never fail to fail. False gods never fail to fail. <laughs> Bad news. Things aren't getting better. But there's some good news, which is that God is still good and his plans are unstoppable. And so you read all of these crazy stories and all of these things that make you go, gosh, this feels like judges. And then you turn the page and you get into 2 Samuel 22 and into 2 Samuel 23. If you have your Bible, uh, just look at these for a moment. And if you look at chapter 20 and at chapter 21, you'll see this is all, uh, this is all history. This is all prose. This is like the text goes all the way to the edges because it's just describing things that have happened. Then you get into chapter 22 in the beginning of 23 and it all turns to poetry. It all turns to Psalms. And in fact, uh, David's song of deliverance in 2 Samuel 22 is almost exactly the same as Psalm 18. So the person that's uh, compiling this story has said, hey, 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 it's all like judges. Can you feel it? Do you feel how it's not getting any better? Do you feel how there's no real hope? But wait, there is some hope. And he concludes this before he gets to the last story about David's census with this reflection on how God is still good and can be trusted. How in the midst of all the chaos, in the midst of all the sin, in the midst of all the brokenness, in the midst of everything that's not going the way it should, God is still faithful. This passage in 2 Samuel 22 says that God is faithful. He is a rock 
Look at verse three, uh, the Lord, verse two. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. My God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold and my refuge, my savior. It says this in verse 32, for who is God but the Lord and who is a rock except our God? In verse 47, the Lord lives and blessed be my rock and exalted be my God, the rock of my salvation. Friends, the world is tumultuous and it goes and it looks good and then it looks bad and then it looks good and then it looks bad and everything's up to the right and then it's all down and you can't trust it. But at the end of all this chaos and all this turmoil, David, who's responsible for a great deal of the turmoil, says, listen, despite all that, God's a rock. God is sturdy. God is strong. God is steadfast. God is solid. If you want to put your hope in all these other things, you're putting your hope in wind. You're putting your hope in vapor, right? Isn't that what it says in the book of Ecclesiastes? Solomon's going, I tried money and I tried wives and I tried wisdom and I tried learning and I tried everything I could try and it was all vapor. And David says, man, this has been bad. Man, this started out great and now it's going bad. But you know what? God is still a rock. Verse 7 describes how God answers when we call. Verse 18 describes how God rescues his people from strong enemies. Verses 35 and 36 talk about how God equips and protects and delivers his people. Verse 50, look at verse 50. We read this a moment ago. David's concluding this psalm. He says, for this I will praise you, O Lord, among the nations. The light of the people of God will still go to the nations. But it won't be because we got more educated or because we got more scientific or because we got political. It'll be because we have God as a rock. That's the light. The light that we want to shine to the nations is Jesus. He's the rock. He's the faithful one. He's the rescuer. He's the deliverer. And the way we know it's Jesus is because of verse 51. This is the last verse of 2 Samuel 22. Great salvation he brings to his king and shows steadfast love, chesed, steadfast love to his anointed, to David and his offspring forever. Wait, 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 wait. We studied that. 2 Samuel 7 The Lord told David, hey, I'm going to establish your kingdom forever. You know why Matthew and Luke are so obsessed with genealogies at the beginnings of their gospels? To help you see who Jesus is. That Jesus is the son of David. Jesus is the anointed one, right? This is what it says in verse 51. Show steadfast love to his anointed. Do you know what that word means? It means Messiah. God is a rock. God is faithful. God will be praised among the nations because of his loyal covenant, steadfast love to his people through the Messiah, through Jesus, through the one who is the offspring of David forever. And so, so listen, it's, it's clear today, uh, I'm not trying to make you feel better about circumstances, about your situation. I've had a lot of things personally myself lately have just made me go like, gosh, is this as good as it gets? And you know what the answer is? Yeah, usually. And I, I just, 
I'm not trying to get you to feel better through some kind of, you know, win it life, pick me up thing. Here's what I want for you. Here's what I want for me. Look at the only rock. Stop looking to money. Stop looking to politicians. Stop looking to economic changes. Stop looking to circumstantial changes. Look to Jesus, the rock, the author and perfecter of our faith, the anointed one who died in our place, who rose victorious over Satan's sin and death to show that death and sin would not be the final word. And Jesus will come back and Jesus will destroy all of his enemies and Jesus will wipe away every tear from our eyes and it will get better eventually. But until then, our hope to not go crazy and our hope to be a light to the nations is to stop thinking something else is gonna fix it and instead to look at Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, as much as it doesn't make me feel better to talk about how it's not getting better, uh, it does make me feel better to think about Jesus. To think about how he brought the kingdom when he came and how he promises to bring it again. And so Lord, we pray now our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Lord, give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. God, you are faithful and good, and we love you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.